The word of our Lord from the Gospel of John. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, this is the question we always want to know, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but so that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, Well, he is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man named Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. And so he said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they said to them, They asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They answered, and so he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? 
And so they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke through Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, why? This is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and you were teaching us? And so they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of God? So the man answered and said, Who is he, Lord? that I may believe in him. Jesus replied, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. So the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore your sin remains. Father, bless the reading of your holy word. And bless the hearing of your holy word. Open our eyes, for we want to see Jesus. We don't want to miss him. In his name we pray. Amen. The nature of the signs is seen especially here in this one. I've been saying for the last few weeks, and you've probably heard me say for the last few years, that when John refers to the miraculous, the the works that Jesus is doing as signs, he uses that word intentionally because he does not see them as mere miracles. Not that miracles in and of themselves aren't incredible and amazing But John uses that term signs to tell us that these were not just wondrous things that Jesus was doing. These were signposts pointing beyond themselves to the reality of who Jesus is. Not just his power, but what that power says about his identity. And you see that especially here. It seems as though John, as he is selectively choosing which of these signs he is going to present. Some of them seem simple. Some of them seem the stories are shorter. Some of them are longer and are filled with dialogue, such as this one and the one that we looked at last week with the feeding of the several thousand, the five thousand we call it. But it seems that John is building his case 
And when he gets to this miracle, he wants us to be overwhelmed by the spiritual reality that is being taught in these physical, miraculous signs that Jesus is performing. There are a couple of things of note concerning this sign. The first is when the healing takes place or the context of the miracle, the sign. It takes place on the Sabbath. The other thing that, have, that is of note that stands out to us is how the healing takes place or the means that Jesus chooses to heal this man. It's in a very peculiar way that Jesus heals this man who is born blind. You probably notice it. What we've seen up to this point is that Jesus at will can speak healing and restoration. As the eternal word, the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth, he has creative power in his very speech. He speaks and it happens. He says it and it is so. For him, simply to speak is to bring life and wholeness to those who are dead and broken. I wonder if there was a brief moment in the disciples' minds when Jesus spat on the ground that they thought, what in the world is he doing? Not just the fact that he's spitting on the ground, but the disciples had been with him when he had healed others. That poor man probably had no earthly idea that Jesus could simply say the word and he would receive his sight. But Jesus, for whatever reason, makes it a point to spit on the ground and make mud in the dirt. Notice also that the man did not even ask to be healed. Perhaps that's presumed. Perhaps we can assume that the man asked, but John does not tell us that the man even asked. It simply says that Jesus walks is walking past this man and the disciples enter into a conversation. The conversation that we all so often ask. The conversation that, that philosophers and theologians and non-believers and believers alike have tried to ask for thousands of years. Why is there suffering in a world like this? Why is there so much brokenness? What's the origin of it? Who caused this? Did this man sin or did his parents sin? He's been blind from birth. Something caused that to go wrong. Something is the source of that trouble. What is it? And Jesus redirects their attention, not to the origin of the man's brokenness, but to the solution of the man's brokenness. So that the works of God might be done, I was sent. And work, I must. I remember the old hymn we used to sing on Sunday nights. We, it was weird. At Riverside, we had like Sunday morning songs, and Lindsay would tell you they were kind of high church and pipe organ and, you know, real bold. And then Sunday nights, we had the piano, and it was like kind of more southern gospel-y type hymns. But I remember singing the hymn on Sunday nights, Work for the Night is Coming. And when we're making the kids work around the house, we always sing, Work for the Night is Coming. David, you remember that, that one, I'm sure. But Jesus says, The night is coming when no one can work. And so for, for now, while I'm here, I was sent to do the works of God so that you might believe 
Don't miss this. Jesus can heal by whatever means and in whatever context He chooses. He chooses the Sabbath and He chooses spit on the ground. However He wills it and whenever He wills it, He is the one who heals. Jesus offers Himself as the only healing for the human condition. There are those who refuse the treatment. Those who refuse the treatment for the human condition because they insist that there is nothing wrong with the human condition. And there are those who refuse treatment for the human condition because they insist upon another way, the way of their own choosing. If there is anything wrong, then I'll find my own way to make it right. But the problem with that is that Jesus is the treatment. Not a treatment, not could be the treatment, not might be the treatment. Jesus is the treatment. He himself declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Of this Jesus, the Apostle Peter declared, There is no other way under heaven by which man may be saved. There is none other. It is only in his name that there is healing. It is only in his name that there is wholeness. It is only in his name that there is well-being and that lives can be put back together. Only in him is there salvation. Which in the scriptures is not primarily concerned with what happens after death, but instead by what happens in this life as God is able to put us back together and remake us in his image. John Wesley declared, Know your disease, know your cure. If you don't know what is wrong with you, you can't find what is right. If you don't know what has broken, you can't find the way of healing. There are four types of people who go to the doctor. Maybe more, you might argue with me about this, but I've come up with four types of people. Four types of people who go to the doctor. Those who think that something might be wrong. That's most of us, right? Those who are just wanting to make sure that nothing is wrong or goes wrong. Those are the, the good ones of us who you know have regular checkup and checkups and whatnot. There are those who are convinced that everything that could possibly be wrong probably is wrong. And then there are those whose spouses or parents make the appointment for them. But going to a doctor for healing assumes that something is in need of being healed. Such is the nature of the good news. The good news of Jesus, it presumes, it presupposes the bad news of sin. Why do we need good news if there's nothing wrong with the world? There was a, a paper back in the early 1900s that posed a question 
what in the world is wrong or what is wrong with the world? And that week, G.K. Chesterton wrote a reply, a letter that read, Dear Editor, you posed the question, what is wrong with the world? Simply put, I am. He recognized that what is wrong with the world, what is the source of brokenness in the world, what is the source of wars and the the source of pain and suffering and death, the source of, of evil, it's found in the human condition. We are broken by sin. We inherit bad news. In ninth grade, I had a biology teacher, Coach West. He was a soccer coach at Pearl. We had a pretty, pretty impressive soccer team, I think. I didn't play on it, so I can say that very objectively. Any of us in class in biology said, Coach West, I have a problem. Or I need help. Coach West, will you please help me? His reply was always the same. I heard it probably every single day of my ninth grade year when I was in biology class in Coach West's class. His reply was always the same, and some of you know what he said. The first step to recovery is admitting that you have a problem. Twelve-step programs such as Alcoholics Anonymous understand the practical, though, Theological wisdom of the Apostle John in his first New Testament epistle. If you say that you have no sin, no need for forgiveness, no need to be healed, then you necessarily miss out on God's gracious offer of forgiveness and healing. You must admit that there is a problem. You must confess that there is something fundamentally broken, something fundamentally wrong here. Not just, oh, I've messed up. Not just, oh, I've messed up my life. Not just, I've gotten myself into such a pickle. But, Lord, there is something deep down within me that is against you. Something deep down within me that is fighting, that is resisting. The resistance is in here. The resistance to God's kingdom. And that resistance is found quite plainly in John chapter 9 here. You remember the first couple or so signs. Everyone's excited. Everyone's happy about what Jesus is doing. He's made hundreds of gallons of wine and he's restoring young children to health. He's even... Feeding an awful lot of very ungrateful people. But the resistance is building. And that resistance comes in the form of spiritual pride. Spiritual pride is toxic. It will destroy us. And it will destroy our only hope. You see, the problem with the Pharisees 
was not their keeping of the law or their expectation that others should keep the law. That was not their problem. If that was the only thing to be said of them, we should rightly consider them good, law-abiding, traditional, conservative, orthodox theologians. In fact, the Pharisees as a group kind of get a bad rap. You know, the bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Well, there were a lot of bad apples in the Pharisees, but we do read, especially even here, that there were some among them who did not want to persecute Jesus. They thought, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Nicodemus, we know, was a Pharisee. And he and Joseph of Arimathea went and took Jesus' body off the cross later in John's Gospel and cared for it and gave it a proper burial. The Pharisees had a minority group among them that were, that were warm to the teachings of Jesus. But the problem with the Pharisees as a whole, the majority of them at least, was their insistence that they had no need for redemption, or at least if they did have need for redemption, that they could very well meet that need themselves, essentially redeeming themselves. Their sin was not that they sought righteousness. That's not their sin. Their sin was rather that they insisted upon self-righteousness. And there's a whole world of difference between the two. Such is the distance, the difference between heaven and hell. The difference between righteousness and self-righteousness. And so Jesus tells them, fine, remain in your sins. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Hell sounds harsh. But what are the alternatives? Let's just pretend that sin isn't a reality. We'll all just pretend to get along and everyone's happy and healthy and wise and wealthy and we're all fine. Have grumblers over in the corners of heaven? Let's force forgiveness and healing on those who refuse. Forced vaccination and forced care of the spiritual sort where God just makes everyone repent. But that's not repentance. Forced freedom and repentance requires freedom. Love requires freedom is no freedom at all. Insisted upon obedience is not obedience of the heart and God wants our hearts. Let's just ignore the situation and force hell upon heaven. Really, those are 
the options. Either we force hell upon heaven and heaven just has to deal with it. Or we force heaven upon hell. And hell just has to deal with it. Toward the end of his great book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis said, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, In the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self choice, there could be no hell, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, to them it is opened. Jesus sees this man born blind. And he spits on the ground. And he makes some clay out of the spit and the dirt. And he rubs the clay on the man's eyes and simply tells him, Go and wash the pool of Siloam. And the man receives his sight back. And notice that his natural impulse is to become a disciple of Jesus, to become a follower. To become one of His. To be faithful to Him. To love Him. To love Him and be faithful to Him with His words and His actions. When He's caught up in the conversation with the Pharisees. Why are you asking so many questions? You you also want to become one of His disciples? Because that's where I'm going. That's what I'm doing. Someone who is lost and blind and is living in darkness and suddenly sees the light and suddenly sees redemption. Someone whose life has suddenly been radically put back together is compelled to follow the one who's just put life back together. But seeing the signs alone is not enough to save a human heart. The Pharisees saw the signs. Remember from last week, there were disciples who abandoned Jesus because of the difficulty of His teaching, His call upon their lives. They said, this is too much. We can't do this. We can't keep following. That's too far. Getting that close to Jesus is just too close. Remember, John tells us that his desire is that in His gospel, we will see the signs of who Jesus was so that through seeing them, we would then believe that Jesus is the Christ. So seeing becomes believing in John's world. Believing that He is the Christ, that He is the Son of the living God, the only one in whose name there is life and salvation. And so the question before us 
is the question that is implied in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. For judgment, Jesus said, I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. So that those who recognize their brokenness, who recognize that life is not what it was intended to be, who recognize that there's, there must be someone who can fix this, who can fix the human predicament, so that they might find healing, so that they might find wholeness. And those who see, who see themselves quite clearly, who see themselves and think, I've got it pretty well made. I can do this. I'm a pretty good guy. A lot better than those others. So that they might be made blind. The Pharisees, are we blind also? You saying we're blind? We are the elite of the elite. If anyone knows the scriptures, it's us. If anyone knows God, it's us. And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. If you were truly spiritually blind, if you had no understanding whatsoever, then you would be innocent. But now you say we see. You insist that you've got life figured out. You insist that you've got God by the tail. You insist that you can make yourself righteous. Therefore, your sin remains. The implied question before us is do we see our need for Him? Never get to the place where you think you can live the Christian life without Jesus. That place is dangerous. That place is toxic. That place will destroy you. And it will destroy the only hope we have. The temptation toward that, toward thinking that, oh, I can live this Christian life and I don't even need Jesus for that. That temptation is real. You see it in the Galatians as Paul told them, if you came to to forgiveness in Christ, if Christ forgave your sins because of grace and through faith, then how in the world do you think you can put your life back together? How do you think he, you can be sanctified? How do you think that you can be cleaned up just by your own strength, by the flesh, he calls it? I can fend for myself. I can do for myself what's needed. Paul says, if you've gone down that road, it doesn't matter where you started. You have abandoned the gospel of Jesus. Because the gospel of Jesus is not self-help.
you see this temptation in John's first epistle, as we saw. And you see this temptation and the reality of this temptation in the revelation that even among God-fearing, faithful people, what seem like faithful people, Jesus stands at the door knocking. Would you let me in? There's no salvation in the Christian life without Jesus. There is only bitterness and resentment, haughtiness. That's a good word. It's a good word that we've kind of lost. Haughtiness. There is nothing but arrogance and brokenness. The darkest kind of brokenness. Brokenness that thinks that everything is fine. Blindness that insists, no, no, I can see just fine. This temptation, in fact, is the most important concern of the Old Testament to show that there is something terribly wrong in the human heart. The good news is that Christ has come to redeem us. He has come to give sight to the blind. He has come to release those who are in bondage. He has come to put life back together. And if we miss Him, If we miss Him, regardless of why we miss Him, especially if we miss Him because we think we don't need Him, that we've got this thing figured out quite well on our own, then we lose the only redemption that is available to us because redemption comes on His terms. Salvation comes on His terms. Life being put back together comes only on His terms. Jesus, do with us and for us what You will. 